Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Health Leader Forge is a production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services. Today's guest is Colonel David Bitterman, Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Army's Southern Regional Medical Command. The Southern Regional Medical Command is the Army's largest regional medical command and consists of 15 Army medical treatment facilities located in the southeast quadrant of the continental United States, from Texas to Georgia and north to Oklahoma through Tennessee. The command provides comprehensive health care services for over 490,000 beneficiaries with an operating budget of over $1.4 billion and has more than 18,000 employees. Colonel Bitterman holds a Master's in Health Administration from Baylor University and a Master's of Strategic Studies from the Army War College. He is also a Fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives and is a recipient of that organization's Career Achievement and Distinguished Service Awards. Welcome to the Forge, Colonel Bitterman. Thanks. So um, you are an Air Force brat, uh, but you call California home. Uh, what made you decide to join the Army? Um, so my dad was a career Air Force um, non-commissioned officer, and uh, the last two years of his life uh, was my last two years of high school. And uh, I was a pretty good student in high school, but uh, I knew I wanted to uh, go to college, and I knew I had to figure out a way to pay for it. So my interest in the Army was really as a vehicle to pay for my undergraduate education. Okay. Um, and so I, I applied uh, for an ROTC scholarship, and and won that scholarship, and and uh, there are five of us children in our family. I was the fourth, um, and uh, so I, I really I didn't know much about the Army. I kind of knew a little bit about the Air Force because I grew up in the Air Force up to about my elementary school age. Um, but uh, so so again, it was just more most, mostly a vehicle to get my college education paid. So. And that's not uncommon. Uh, a lot of folks kind of start in yeah. that way. Right. Uh, and so you did, you got your scholarship and you went to the University of California at Davis. And what did you major in? That Majored in biology, biological sciences. Okay. And, and um, what were you thinking? Were you thinking about a lot of guys that wind up doing that? Yeah. Thinking medical school or something along those that's, lines? Is that where you were going? That's exactly what I was thinking okay. of doing. I was, so I had great plans on, on I've been a medical doctor. By that, by that time, I had an older sister who was a, uh, a nurse and uh, loved the medical profession. It seemed like a great occupation. You're helping people. You're of service to people. And, um, yes, yeah, so that was my plan. I uh, uh -huh. went to UC Davis, had a great pre-med program, yeah. uh, really a great reputation. Uh, yeah. and, and so uh, I figured I'd be in the Army for four or five years, take the MCAT, uh, go right into med school and and uh, and life would be perfect after that, right? Okay. All right. So you did ultimately take an active duty commission. I did. And you became a medical service corps officer. Yes. And what is that? So so medical service corps is one of the six 
commissioned corps in the Army Medical Department. There are two major subdivisions of the Medical Service Corps. There's the administrative series, which I'm, I'm one of those okay. uh, occupational specialties, and then there's the clinical um, uh, subdivision. And, and the clinical uh, subdivision is, is much smaller, and it includes things like um, audiologists and um, uh, clinical psychologists and social workers and um, podiatrists. Now, all of the administrative um, areas are, are all of the non-clinical parts of the delivery of health care okay. that exist in, either in the military or in the civilian sector. So, so when I came in the military, I was what they call a, um, a 70 Bravo, which is a generic field medical assistant. And uh, as staff officer, I was in charge of uh, putting together, running all the logistics, the personnel, the training, uh, the operations for for a uh, a combat medical unit. For from the smallest, most basic size of 20 men in a supporting an infantry battalion, up to a, uh, a, a mobile army surgical hospital, MASH hospital. So, but this is in your early, this that, is in your, in your early phase. So you. So you so you, you came in you were, became a medical service a, a seventy Bravo a yes. general kind of field medical assistant is what we call it that's correct um, and and you started in the infantry start so in yeah. supporting the infantry I was uh, a, I was in a six hundred and sixty man infantry battalion okay. and I was in charge of twenty six medics so we provided all the uh, medical care uh, the initial medical care um, in a in a both in a deployed environment and uh, in garrison while we were at home training for for army stuff you know how, how, how did you feel coming in you know straight out of uh, out of being a biology major at yeah. UC Davis and the um, uh, if I remember correctly the the um, the drum major of the of the UC Davis marching band was well, that right? well almost you almost <laughs> got it right mark uh -oh. I was the first I was the uh, I was actually drum major of my High school, oh, high school. Okay. Um, marching band. The last uh, two years, okay. I was in the Cal Aggie marching band okay. though. Right. Uh, first two years, <laughs> uh, played the mellophone poorly, okay. uh, but uh, okay. but I did play. Um, so so preparation to you know playing the mellophone and, and, yeah, yeah. and ROTC. Yeah. How did how did that prepare you for 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 this first job as a as a medical platoon leader yeah. in the infantry? So the ROTC programs at most major universities across the uh, across the uh, the nation give. Um, give commissioned officers a good grounding in the basics of military history and doctrine and and how what it's like to be a small unit leader but it really doesn't prepare you for the challenges of of leading a team of you know in my case 26 men yeah. um, you go through a short course I went through a short course here called the officer basic course at Fort Sam Houston Texas in mm -hmm. San Antonio uh, which was about 16 weeks long, and then I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, and learned how to jump out of uh, uh, perfectly good airplanes, as they say, with a parachute on my back. Uh -huh. And then I went to my unit, and um, you are really a rookie when yeah. you arrive at, at your unit, and and uh, you, if you're a smart second lieutenant, which is the lowest, which is the grade you come in at, um, you'll you'll listen to the more experienced non-commissioned officers. Who you outrank, but who are far more experienced at you are, than are at uh, delivering healthcare okay. in that setting. So. so, who did you, 
so I'm, since you're still here and yes. seem to have been fairly successful, I imagine you did actually listen to some of these gentlemen. I did. Yeah. So tell me about that. What, did you, who did you find that, that kind of influenced you during that period? Um, um, I, I, so my, my first, um, you know, we are an army that was changing at the time. Okay. I walked into my med platoon, uh, my, what they called a battalion aid station. I was met by my, by my platoon sergeant who had a cup of coffee in one hand and a, a lit cigarette in the other. And This is and the medical uh, th station. This is the battalion <laughs> aid station. We're, and, and so, as I said, we were in an army in transition. Yeah. And, um, and so, but, you know, outward appearances aside, this was a very seasoned Vietnam vet who um, knew... Uh, exactly how to doctrinally um, support this large uh, light infantry battalion, yeah. and so um, he he influenced me a great deal. Um, I had actually had a good cadre of about six non-commissioned officers in that uh, group that really taught me how yeah. how to employ um, and and use. Uh, uh, a medical platoon yeah. in support of that battalion. It was really a phenomenal um, uh, learning lab, really, mm -hmm. um, and really kind of set the foundation for for my future. Okay. I think. Did you find um, Did you find a mentor at that time? Did somebody reach out to you at all? Uh, above, so, so you've been talking about kind of you learned a lot right. from the people who you were supervising. Right. Did somebody reach out for you either parallel at the peer level or above? You know? So I had. Um, I I don't think my experience was much different from most other second lieutenants. Um, the, the battalion commander was a, was a Vietnam veteran at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. He was probably in his mid-40s. Uh, to me at the time, he appeared older than dirt, you know, and, right, and right. incredibly probably, wise and, yeah. and knew exactly what... Uh, I got a lot of mentorship from him and yeah. from the battalion XO, who was his second in command, uh -huh. um, who were just normal guys yeah. who were just trying to achieve the, our Army's mission at the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and then later on, as I progressed in my career, yeah. I ran into more and more mentors yeah. who really took great effort um, to, to, to kind of forming the way I thought and the way I acted. Um, and, and really served as great examples for how I did the same thing later on in my career. Okay. Can you give me an example of something you learned Early on, and you know, in this kind of initial phase, you know, your kind of first several years in the army, not that job necessarily, yeah. but you know, so, from, in terms of leadership or mentorship, um, you 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 learn things, good things and bad things from watching people. I think, and I learned early on in my career that maintaining an even temperament. It sounds very simple, yeah, but. Um, Maintaining an even temperament and not flying off the handle mm -hmm. was a pretty valuable life skill to have. And uh, I remember specifically as I, I was a mid-grade um, officer, been in probably about at this point about uh, 10 years or so. And I thought it would be a great leadership, um, you know, situational leadership. You, you adapt how you how you treat people based on your specific environment and what's presented. And at, at, at one point, I thought, and I very specifically remember this, um, that it would be um, 
a good technique to be very directive and very assertive and in, in one particular incident. incident. And I, this captain who was the uh, recipient of my very directive and very uh, assertive uh, leader, situational leadership style at the uh -huh. time uh, came back to me about four hours later and with great personal courage sat down with me and told me how that was really not effective. And, and boy, mm. talk about an important life lesson. Yeah. You know, I took that and uh, I did something with it. And I've been very um, careful not to, um, not, n not, to, not, to sh not to react emotionally. Reacting emotionally is the easy thing to do. Right. You know, frankly, you need to, as a leader, you need to control your, your, um, your body language, your temperament, process what's going on around you, and then um, react maturely and logically to, to your situation. So you, um, you spent kind of most of your early years in field units. Yes. Is that right? And so at what point did you kind of say, you know, this, uh, I like this Army thing. I kind of like being a medical service corps yes. officer. I might let that whole medical school thing go. What, 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 what kind of drove that decision? So I was in Korea. Uh -huh. um, I was a company commander of a uh, of a mash hospital, and I was busy studying for my MCAT. And this is at at the very you know this this is at the time when we were at the cusp of you started to see personal computers on desks and stuff. So I had stacks of three by five cards. We had we didn't we hadn't progressed to the point where we were doing online studying, and and uh, I remember having these massive stacks of three by five cards and just going through the repetitive memory and realizing that what I was learning, what I was trying to remember, what I was preparing myself for was really something I didn't want to do for the rest of my life. I really believed that I was good at and I, I really enjoyed um, small unit leadership. I enjoyed influencing others. I enjoyed um, leading organizations and and I looked at um, what some of our providers physicians were doing in this hospital and I realized that some of them had probably um, committed to their occupation for the wrong reasons they were chasing the prestige the paycheck the the um, what what comes with being a, a physician, a doctor yeah. in our society. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, that that wasn't, to me, as important as achieving my life goal. At the time, I didn't know what my life goal was, but uh, I got there eventually. Oh, so, interesting, okay. Yeah. So let's, we, we can come back to that in a minute. Okay, All we right. will, Good. yeah, we should. Good, okay, so, so you're in Korea. At yeah. what point did you, do, do, so you made, at some point you made a transition to yes. working um, in fixed facilities, as we call yes. them. So what was that? How so, did that come So about? the very next assignment, mm -hmm. I was in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and I was assigned to our, I guess what you would call our corporate headquarters, okay. which is at the Office of the Surgeon General. It's where mm -hmm. policy is made. It's where, it's where strategy is developed. And, and I worked for a, um, a guy named Major David Rubenstein. And, um, and I was a captain at the time. We shared a small office. And, and he, he was probably my first um, really effective mentor. And he, he, was a, uh, he had just recently gotten his master's in health administration through the Baylor University. 
and he talked to me about setting career goals mm -hmm. and and developing a plan to achieve those goals and and what we now know in the army is a career map and, and helped me develop that career map and so that really set the stage for me to okay in two years from now and this is back in 1991 two years from now I'm going to um, I'm going to enter a master's in health administration program, matriculate through that program, mm -hmm. and start being a healthcare administrator with a in, in the army with the goal of down the road leading um, a, a hospital uh, in the army or in the civilian sector. Okay, so that's Major Rubenstein later. Major General Major Rubenstein. General Rubenstein. Yeah. Okay, so he had a pretty good plan going for himself as well. He, he right? did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you went to Army Baylor. I, I did. I entered Army Baylor program, um, which is a, a collaboration. It's a it's a cooperative program between Baylor University and and uh, the Academy of Health Sciences down at Fort Sam Houston. Mm -hmm. um, curriculum. All the uh, professors are. Um, accredited uh, by Baylor University. It's a great program. It's been in existence since I believe 52, 53. And uh, in fact, we recently got word that uh, U.S. News and World Report is now the seventh ranked um, program, MHA program in the nation, which we're all pretty proud of. Yeah. Um, at the time, the first year, the didactic year, was a 60 semester hours crammed into one year. Yeah. Um, there, there, it was pretty intense. There were 48 students in my course mm -hmm. that started, 46 uh, finished. Mm -hmm. um, so you did one year of, of didactic, meaning you were in a classroom yes, for right. a year. And then one year, the second year is called an administrative residency. And so mm -hmm. I went to a Madigan Army Medical Center out at mm -hmm. Fort Lewis, Washington for my admin residency, along with a Navy lieutenant. Okay. Um, and we worked for and our the the hospital the administrator of the hospital was a was a gentleman named uh, Thad Krupka a superb mentor mm -hmm. who and the whole purpose of this administrative residency was to teach teach the resident how how healthcare is delivered at the user level okay and so for so i i rotated throughout that year um, throughout the hospital and through other civilian organizations too i spent mm -hmm. Um, I went into the operating rooms. I spent time with the anesthesia providers. I um, I spent time in the emergency department with the, the senior surgical resident on a payday weekend on a uh -huh. Friday night. You know, uh -huh. um, I spent some. T I spent time with. Uh, I spent a week with a group health cooperative of Puget Sound, learning about managed care in a in one of our very first managed care organizations. Uh, spent spent a week with the University of British Columbia. Learning about Canadian healthcare and how it's delivered. Uh, spent time with at Harborview Hospital, uh, a level one trauma center up at uh, up in Seattle, uh, learning uh, learning about trauma care uh, and and all of these experiences um, comprehensively came together and and formed uh, a, a, an experience base that you, I think a typical program you wouldn't you wouldn't have the opportunity to 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 gain all these experiences and and help you um, as you develop your own practice of your own style of practice later on as a health healthcare administrator okay really a phenomenal program yeah yeah so how did it change uh, or did it establish I guess it's still early relatively early in your career yes um, 
how did it change or establish what you what you wanted to do that career plan you had talked about so what, so uh, my career plan my career map mm -hmm. terminated um, in my becoming a the lead healthcare administrator in a medical center um, and and later on I I I changed that career map to be a uh, a, a commander of one of those, uh, the CEO of one of those organizations. And every, you, you, don't, you don't leave an MHA program and say, well, tomorrow I'm going to be a CEO and I'm going to be a good CEO because right. I'm a good person, right? right? You have to have life experiences. You have to have the skills, knowledge, and attributes necessary to be successful as a CEO. And so my career map that I developed with my mentor um, David Rubenstein helped mm. me um, chart a path to be that down the road CEO. My first step was to be a good administrator. And mm -hmm. so right after I left um, the admin residency, I became the uh, administrator for Department of Surgery there at Madigan Army Medical Center. Um, uh, we had uh, 12 surgical teaching programs, about 600 people in the department. And I was responsible for all the administration, all the logistics, personnel actions, uh, all the supplies, all the training, all the operations of that um, very large teaching department. Um, and that was the first step. And yeah. so that later on, uh, that and other assignments qualified me um, to be um, considered for selection to be a deputy commander for administration okay. um, in you know, first in a small clinic and then at progressively larger organizations after that. Okay. Um, so when you when you were at Madigan, uh, yes. this this was the first time you were now you were now uh, you had briefly been at at uh, at the Surgeon General's office doing policy kind of stuff. Yes. Now you're at Madigan um, as the administrator for the department. How was leadership there that role different than what you had experienced before, particularly, say, in, in yeah. your in your experience with the line units, the infantry, and, and you know, the mashes and so forth? How was that different? Uh, much different. So in a um, leadership styles in a combat environment, in a, in a what we call a EMTO um, uh, environment, it's an Army acronym, span, stands for Modified Table of Organization and Equipment. It's basically all the, you know, the combat style units you see out in the Army, EMTO um, mm -hmm. units. Leadership styles there are very directive in nature, mm -hmm. very mission oriented. You have a mission, you have your commander's intent, and, and uh, there's not a lot of discussion about how to achieve something. You develop a plan, you train to that plan, and then you execute the plan. Um, things are much more fluid and much different in a, a fixed facility healthcare environment. Um, the deci decisions are made m much in a much greater uh, proportion through a consensus-driven effort. Um, there are m very many complex systems in healthcare, and they're they're all interrelated. Um, the leadership or the governance structure of many organizations is more matrix-oriented, and so you work across the organization rather up that rather than up and down silos. Um, chains of command are sometimes confusing. Sometimes you work for multiple people at the yeah. same time to achieve uh, certain objectives. And, and that managed chaos is actually very um, exciting. 
It's exciting to go to, go to work in that kind of environment. Um, you know what you're trying to do. You're trying to deliver world-class health care um, to our deserving patients. And, and be, given the, you, you, have a great, you have great flexibility to achieve that objective um, through working in that kind of environment. The, 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 the typical department chief in an academic teaching hospital like that is very seasoned. Have, have they been there for a long time? Um, and you have to convince yourself and, and convince them that what you're doing is to their advantage and to okay. their patient's advantage. Sometimes their motivations aren't the same as yours. Okay. And sometimes they're not patient-centered. Sometimes they're self-centered. Okay. And so, and you've got to work through those issues with okay. those very senior leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you moved on. You did you did a number of, of, of things, and I'm going to skip forward in your career just a bit uh, to where you you finally did have your first what, what you referred to as a deputy commander for administration, right. or what's sometimes kind of translated by army folk like yourself to be a chief operating officer. And yes. you had that. That was your your first assignment in that position was at. Uh, Raider Clinic That's uh, correct. in um, uh, in the D.C. area, uh, followed by a second D.C.A. slash Chief Operating Officer role at Kimbrough Ambulatory Center, which is up in Maryland, right? That's so, correct. Um, you know, both of these were outpatient treatment centers. What did you learn? You know, now you're in the role, the yeah. role that you'd kind of been looking at and saying, I want to be there. What did you learn from, you know, finally have, when you, when you finally put on the hat and and, and became the chief operating officer? I, I think the the very first thing I learned was I still needed to learn. Yeah, okay. Um, one, a practice I, I started when I took my first uh, deputy commander for administration job was to sit down every week with my direct reports. And uh, it was scheduled for an hour, but, and I, I always, I always approached with them, the first meeting, I, I always told them, look, this is our hour to get, um, to brief each other on, on what we are doing. If for, for you to bring me up to speed on the issues that, it, that are happening in your area, and for me to provide you so the support I, I, I think you need to do your job. And so, you know, at that point, I'd been in the Army for 14 years, and I... I had pretty good experiential base, but I had, I had all these other departments that were now reporting to me that I had no experience with, like okay. social work, like pharmacy, um, like patient administration. Uh, I really had no background in those areas, and so I really needed to learn from them, and they needed to be able to trust me, uh, trust their leader that they, that I would have their. Uh, that that, they, that, I, that I would support them uh, as they needed resources mm -hmm. to do their job. Um, so that was the first thing I learned. And then as I, I went to Kimbrough, so Kimbrough is a much bigger place. Right. It had, they also did ambulatory surgery and also served as a, as a higher headquarters for uh, four other clinics that were okay. out throughout Pennsylvania and, um, and Maryland. Um, and so you learn to um, operate over time and distance in that kind of environment too. And you learn to so trust subordinate leaders because what's the alternative? You can't right. be everywhere all the time. You, right. you must um, develop relationships long distance and, 
and uh, and trust that those um, uh, the, those subordinate leaders are going to do what you know, what you've asked them to do. So. Okay. So that's a that's a big transition from being able to walk in and, and look around at that's right. everything you're you're in charge of. That's correct. And I know I mean, just from personal experience having worked with you, you're big on that. You you yes. you do make a, a, a habit of walking around. Uh, and talk a little bit about that. Why is that important? Uh, it's I think it's vitally important. I I, I think that um, first off, leaders need to know the environment where that that their subordinates are working in. They need to know the challenges. They need to know um, what constraints they're operating under, um, and you you don't you don't get there by um, by reading email, by sequestering yourself in your office. Right. Uh, and and then f your subordinates they really need to know that they can trust your leaders. Okay. So so when you go out and there's you know you read there's dozens of management books out there about you know, managing by walking around and, and leadership rounds and whatever you call it. Uh, the reality is that the leaders need to get out so the subordinates can see um, and and learn about their leader and and learn that they can trust their leader to to uh, provide them the resources they need to get their job done. Um, healthcare delivery in our country is really just it's a system of systems. There's a Logistics system. There's a payment system. There's a um, there's a hiring system in many cases, and how they interact with each other is really the science in healthcare administration. Okay. Um, and, and you don't learn those things unless you get out and experience them. Okay. Yeah. So that's a you you kind of bring up a point that I wanted to ask you a little later, but but you know I'll, I'll pose it now, and that is. Um, uh, you know, your career spanned the adoption of electronic media. Uh, you know, you were here, you were, you were in uh, probably before, before the existence of email as a, as a management tool, um, yes. before social media. You've seen that kind of uh, change the way we do business. Talk a little bit about the, the good and the bad. I mean, you've made a point that you, you, don't, you don't manage by answering email. Yes. But at the same time, it is a useful tool, right? I mean, yeah, or it can very, be. Very useful. So how, how have you seen, how have you seen Kind of the pluses and minuses of of kind of of, of electronic media, social media. What do you what do you see that? How do you see that? Um, so it's it's about information uh, sharing. Okay. Right. Um, I believe that every person has a finite ability to deal with information effectively. Uh, I think you can you you can process a lot of information ineffectively but but what do you do what do you do with the important bits of information that you really need to take action on and, and so throughout my career so I, I I came in the army when it was all paper yeah. and it was all physical inboxes and reading one thing at a time and doing things very sequentially yeah. and, and and progressed to to now I very routinely at my standing desk, because <laughs> you gotta, you know, uh, at my standing desk, I get 200 emails a day, and and very few documents in my inbox. And yeah. things are done very in a parallel manner, and, yeah. and they're done um, in a distributed way to many multiple people. And you sometimes wonder in that kind of environment whether you are as as effective as you can. And I I get very worried 
as you can be. I, I get very worried sometimes that um, our leaders today are treating things very superficially because they're being overloaded with information. There's too much information. And, and uh, in fact, I've, re I've read a couple articles about that recently. Uh, yeah. Information deluge, you know. Okay. What do you do with all, all, of, all, of, the, all of this? And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dilemma, it's a paradox, you know. Uh, back, I think, uh, I think 30 years ago, we weren't nearly as effective a healthcare uh, system in our nation because we didn't have the information. Now we have it, and I think we're we're kind of hampered by all of all of the well, all of the information that keeps coming at us. You yeah. can't process it all. And I'm not sure I answered your question, no. but that's the challenge I'm dealing yeah. with yeah. on a daily basis: yeah. parsing what's important from yeah. what's not important, and 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 spending the time with what's important. Well, so talking about what's important from Kimbro, you were board selected yes. to be the commander of the 212th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, also known as a MASH, kind yes. of like the TV show, yes. right? Um, and if I remember correctly, this was the last MASH in the Army? That's correct. Okay. And you were the last commander of the last MASH, is that right? I was the last uh, lieutenant colonel commander, okay. and, and then it, it, it transitioned uh, to be a combat support hospital okay. after that, so a okay. different type of organization, yeah. Okay, so what is a MASH? I mean, since most of us know MASH from, from the TV show, yes. what is a MASH actually? What is it, what's its mission? What is it, what, what was it supposed to do doctrinally? And what did you do as the, as the 212th commander? Sure, so, so a MASH hospital, is a 100% deployable, 36-bed surgical ICU. That's and that's really it. Um, it. It was designed doctrinally to follow very close behind um, expeditionary forces. That means a you know a, 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 a force that's moving into contact with the enemy, um, and then establish right up right up behind that force and provide provide very complex surgical care um, for the first you know month or so of combat and that's exactly what the 212th did during the initial invasion into uh, into Iraq during 2003 I joined the unit shortly uh, after the unit had uh, been in combat for about two months uh -huh. uh, I joined the unit downrange um, okay. and then uh, we we, so they were in Iraq. They were in Iraq. Right. Took, took command. And, and they were the um, they were the only hospital in Iraq for the first uh, about three weeks of wow. combat. And so they saw um, they saw the preponderance of casualties. That you know, there were long lines of evacuation and from from where the invasion forces were farthest north into Iraq and so it they, that that group of men and women really did some heroic things before I joined them yeah. um, a pretty incredible unit the, the the cool thing about the 212th mash was the the love the it had such a great history it was the most highly decorated combat hospital in the in the army and you took a lot of pride in that history. You took a lot of pride in 
the reliance you had on the the men and women you worked with and the team you worked with. It truly was a team of teams, and it was probably one of the most enjoyable um, assignments I ever had. We we weren't burdened with email. We uh, weren't burdened uh, with all you know all the stuff we just talked sure, about sure. Um, the electronic. Uh, you know, media, yeah. it was really very simple. You had a singular mission to deploy and support our combat forces. And it was, it was very physically demanding. You had, we, we traveled with 35 big five-ton army trucks mm -hmm. towing all of our equipment behind us in big trailers. Yeah. And when you, when you got to your location, you had about 12 hours to set up this massive complex of tents and containers to be able to receive your first patients and it was it was truly a a, a fantastic group of people to work with i was i was humbled every day going to work so what was your role you know you're an administrator so you're not you're not you're not a surgeon you're right. not you're not treating the patients so right. what was your role as commander as commander i w my role was to train the organization to their mission and to provide them the resources they needed to get their job done. Okay. That that's it in a nutshell. Um, I th I felt in sometimes sometimes my role was to buffer them uh -huh. from um, our higher headquarters in in a sense. I, I think in every organization a good leader does that. Uh, you as the leader you develop the priorities for the for your unit priorities in training in manning in resourcing and. And there are distractors that get in the way, and you, you've got to you've got to guard against that. I think um, my role was also to influence all those junior leaders and the soldiers of the Mash, who were tired, who um, um, had families at at home, and um, who were distracted sometimes, who needed to be um, uh, encouraged, who needed to be uh, reminded of their mission. Um, that wasn't really a, that hard of a mission to do. Yeah. Um, I, it's an incredibly dedicated group of men and women. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the leadership experience there at the MASH was, was truly a humbling one. Yeah. Great. So from, from there, you came to, um, you took another uh, chief operating officer or DCA job back in DC, and that was to be uh, the DCA at DeWitt Army Community Hospital in the DeWitt Healthcare Network. What was kind of unique about DeWitt? When I arrived at DeWitt in 2005, we had just, it was, it's look, first off, the, the hospital is located in the, in the national capital area. So the politics of operating in the national capital area is very unique. Okay. Um, secondly, a very large um, healthcare network served about uh, 70,000 or so patients in the Northern Virginia area of four, five distributed clinics and a, uh, a, a community hospital with 43 beds. Yeah. Um, the leadership team there was very unique. Yes. And, and, and so I worked for a, a uh, Colonel Patricia Horho, who is now Lieutenant General Patricia Horho, our, our Surgeon General. And she had, she had a unique approach to leadership. Um, she spent an awful lot of time, the first part of my, the two-year tour I was there, developing um, the effectiveness of our team. And she did that through 
um, a structured series of organizational effectiveness um, training sessions and, and really developed the trust between the three deputy commanders and the, and the commander and the command sergeant major to a, in a huge way, in a way that I've tried to replicate every, every other organization I've been to since then. Um, she, she, rem remarkable leader, and, and uh, I, I learned a great deal from her. So. That's what, you, what, what in particular are you, have you tried to replicate um, or carry from that, from those lessons? What, 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 what did you take away from it saying, this is what I want to do uh, in the future? So, so most, most organizations you go to, um, you, you arrive into a team a team that's already established. Uh -huh. And there's a certain amount of time that goes by where team members learn to trust each other and, and learn what motivates each other. And one thing that she did that I've tried to do is very early in that team forming, whether you're joining a team or whether you're, the, the entire team is, is forming new, is you bring in outsiders a trained organizational effectiveness trainers who, who talk about the mission, who help you um, learn about each other, help you learn what motivates you personally, and you yeah. share that with the group. Yeah. And, 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 and they do some personality indicator things, like I'm an extreme extrovert. Um, I know what motivates me, but, but others may not know that. And so um, there's a series of exercises where you go through where you disclose this information. And it, it really leads to some, um, some very um, quick turns on team forming, storming, norming. You go, through, you go through the normal team forming process in a very short period of time, one that would take, you know, a, a normal six months period, you you do that in a couple weeks, and so you get to a level of effectiveness much quicker. Okay. So you think it is useful to take some time out to do that kind of exercise, these kind of exercises, where you really do get to know each other and absolutely, and you form okay. you you form expectations of okay. each other. Okay. Everyone knows up front what you what this is. These are our boundaries. These are gonna. These this is how we're going to operate. Um, this is how we're going to communicate with each other. Um, we we all are are motivated by um, the organization achieving success. Uh -huh. If the organization is successful, we personally will be successful. Um, so it's useful. Obviously, some of that can be encouraged or helped by outsiders. Yes. You said, which is a useful thing. You think it is useful to bring somebody from the outside, even if, with your experience in having an MHA and being having been a commander, right. it's still useful to bring somebody from the outside, rather than saying, "I can do this myself." That's correct, okay. and it's because sometimes you're too close to the situation, you can't see, um, you can't be objective about what you what how the team is developing. Okay, so from there, you went to. Uh, down to here, you came down to Fort Sam Houston, where we are today, to to Brook Army Medical Center. I did. Which was it was Brook Army Medical Center at the time. I guess kind of still is. Yes, it is. But it was um, 
So Brooke at the time, or BAMC as we refer to it in the Army, and you were the DCA uh, or Chief Operating Officer there. BAMC is the second largest Army hospital with over 5,000 employees, 35 teaching programs. It's got a burn center and a level one trauma center. And if that wasn't enough, um, <laughs> you were also involved at the time, and when I say it's kind of still is, you at that time, uh, uh, the federal government had decided to make an investment to build, basically double the size of the facility, merge it with the Air Force in a way to create the San Antonio uh, Military Medical Center, uh, a $700 million project. Um, and so, so talk about uh, 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 the hours that that took from... <laughs> a piece of cake, right? Yeah, it sounds it, like it. Yeah, and this happened um, about four months after the Washington Post Walter Reed scandal. Uh, uh. There was a lot of attention uh, being paid to how our military treated our combat veterans. So we were standing up special organizations to take care of our recovering veterans. Um, that was a very, um, a very tough time for our military. Uh, and a very rewarding time for me personally at Brook Army Medical Center. Okay. Um, now, so now, you know, five years later, it is, well, it's longer than that, gosh, seven years later. <laughs> um, so now it's the largest hospital in the Department of Defense. Okay. Um, it's, it's a two and a half million square foot hospital, um, state of the art, world class everything. At the time, we were really, doing things kind of one day at a time. Things were changing so rapidly. Okay. Um, developing relationships with our sister service, the Air Force down in San Antonio, uh, that was that was a day-to-day -day process. Um, the process of, of developing the requirements for our new facility that we we're building here yeah. and, and putting them on paper and then dealing, doing the project management to, to do this huge capital improvement project. Um, at the same time, we were standing up other organizations to take care of. It was just very a very uh, chaotic time. And, and we were still running a very large hospital and we were at the same time. Exactly right. Yeah. And, but, you know, it uh, when you felt like you were getting burned out and you were um, kind of at your ropes in, all you really had to do was go walk down to the burn unit or walk over to the Center for the Intrepid, which is a which is a rehab world class rehabilitation facility for uh, burn amputation, am amputee care, and limb salvage care, yeah. and talk to any of those soldiers who were incredibly grateful for the care that was being delivered. That really gave you um, a second win, and a third win, and a fourth win, yeah. and really kept you um, grounded in what what the organization and what the Army was all about. I came into that job thinking, um, I, this is at, I think, about the 22nd year of service. I came into that job thinking, I, I am retiring after <laughs> this because uh -huh. at this point I was just very tired. Yeah. Because you're, you're working very hard. Yeah. And that, that was one of the most professionally rewarding three years I've, I've spent um, in the military. I really gave you a sense that you were, we are incredibly patient focused, uh, which, is a, which is a theme we want to get to across 
all of Army medicine, and we really felt close to our mission and how we were delivering care to our patients. Really a remarkable time. Okay. Yeah. So you, you did eventually get an opportunity to slow down for about four months. You got to be the, yeah. the chief of staff, chief operating officer, if you will, for the AMED uh, Center and School, kind right. of our, the home of uh, Army medicine education. Yes. Uh, except, like I said, you only got to do that for four months because the chief operating officer position for the Army Medical Department, the whole Army Medical Department, uh, went vacant and you were tapped to step into that role. Uh, kind of unexpectedly. <laughs> Very unexpectedly. Okay. So you were suddenly, you went from kind of uh, 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 overseeing education and so forth to actually kind of uh, monitoring the functions of the entire medical department. A $13 billion budget, 3.9 million beneficiaries, 50 facilities around the world, including eight academic hospitals, and, oh, by the way, still in charge of training all the medical assets for the Army. Um, so what was that like? <laughs> Um, that was overwhelming. Was it? Oh, it was incredibly overwhelming. And this happened, I got there, uh, I took, uh, I, I, um, I took Mr. Herb Coley's job. Mm -hmm. Mr. Coley had been uh, serving our nation for 42 years at that point, either as right. a commissioned officer or as a Department of the Army civilian, and a superb leader, and, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to replace Herb Coley. Yeah. I knew that um, the job as, as I worked it would be different than what he did. Right. I knew that because at the time I, when I took it, um, there was, we were reading in the media about sequestration okay. and budget cuts right. and doing, um, doing our mission with fewer resources. And then it became not just sequestration, but it became furlough of our Department of the Army employees and, and, and a 40% decrement in our budget during that first year. Yeah. And, and being able to continue to deliver high quality healthcare without a loss of quality. Yeah. And, and so in many instances, that, that very long seven months that I did that job were really about dealing with the crisis yeah. of the hour okay. or of the day. Okay. And at that point, I think I relied in a huge way on relationships that I had built over the last 20 plus years. So you called on a network that you had been I, building. I did. Yeah. And I really um, made great efforts to actively communicate with our 10 major subordinate commands throughout Army medicine. Um, I, I believe we are a very, very large enterprise. Um, yeah. uh, and if, if we didn't make the effort to actively communicate, then there was gonna be a lot of chaos throughout our ranks. And, and, and so I, I made it a great effort to do that, to actively communicate. Okay. Through email, through phone, through face-to-face -face conversations. Yeah. Um, when we, you're working at this level, you, it's, there's, there's no more of just walking down the hall and shaking people's hands. That's right? correct, yeah. And there was, a, there was a fair amount of that, too, uh -huh. because at the, even at the corporate headquarters, when okay. you have 500 employees here at the corporate headquarters, yeah. that it, they're, you're, they're reading the same newspapers that America, American citizens are about uh -huh. our 
our nation is reducing and reducing budgets and and furloughs and so there's a fair amount of walking around the headquarters and maintaining okay. your morale and doing okay. that thing too but but no it's it it wasn't like my early days when I did a lot of management by walking around and and pulsing the morale and training and and resource needs of our you know, of 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 my unit I couldn't really do that effectively so a, a different kind of communication though. you're saying communication was still central here it's just a different kind of communication that you had to that's correct really yeah. learn and, and, and you put have to place. be very upfront transparent in times when when times aren't going well yeah. when things aren't going well you really need to be um, communicate often and be as transparent as you possibly can with yeah. with those you work with uh, they have to they have to be able to trust you Trust is hugely important, yeah. and 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 if they don't, um, you're really going to have a tough time meeting your mission. Okay. So, you did you did 11 months um, in that position, was that right? 11 months. It was about seven and a half, oh, months, seven and a half and months, and then okay. um, I was replaced by okay. Mr. Fiore, and okay. uh, and then I stepped down to be the deputy. Oh, okay. For a couple months okay. before I got my current position. Okay, and so you now your current position is Chief of Staff of the Southern Regional Medical Command or Chief Operating Officer for the Southern Regional Medical Command. Right. So tell me a little bit of what is the Southern Regional Medical Command? What does it do? How does it how okay. does it what's what's its mission? So so the Southern Regional Medical Command is is one of those 10 major subordinate commands of Army Medicine that I just spoke about. Um, of the 10, there are 5 or regional medical commands that provide health care. We are, our region is the southeast quadrant of the United States. So west, almost all the way to El Paso, Texas, um, up to uh, Arkansas, including Arkansas and uh, Oklahoma, all the way out to the east coast to include Puerto Rico is our, is our region. We have 11 major um, hospitals or health clinics at installations across um, the Southeast United States, and and they have many subordinate clinics that are either within their 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 facility or or distributed throughout their geographic area. We have about twenty eight thousand people we're responsible for. They're employed by the. They're employed in, by, uh, by by CIRMC. Or report to CIRMC. In some That's way. correct. Okay. That's correct. And uh, depending on what monies you count, <laughs> uh, we're, we're about a, a 1.8 to 2.4 billion dollar a year organization. Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's a, big, a huge scope. It is. So, um, what do you do? What do you do as a COO? Or, as the chief, chief of staff. So I'm my. Title is chief of staff. Okay. So I coordinate all um, all staff actions within the headquarters, and I I serve as um, my boss's eyes and ears and her right right hand man. Really, okay. um, she she leads the organization. Uh -huh. I run the organization. If okay. that makes sense. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit. What does that mean you know, on a day to day basis? Who are you meeting with? Who are you talking to to, to do the running of the organization? So, so out in our um, out in the region, there are eleven different medical treatment facilities, okay. hospitals, major medical centers, and each of those medical treatment facilities has a CEO, a subordinate CEO. Okay. So, so my role really is to provide those leaders with the resources they need to be successful. Okay. To, to make sure that they're delivering the health care that 
uh, we've they've contracted to deliver. Okay. okay, so holding them accountable. Um, in some cases, going to our higher headquarters asking for more resources, and in many cases, um, serving as a buffer of information between our higher headquarters and that organization. Okay. 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 Uh, I know that's very oh, that's overly simplistic, but that's that's really what I do. Who so who else is here in the C-suite, if you will, um, that you coordinate with? So so our governance structure. Yeah, that's We've, what I'm, we've got asking. our um, commanding general. Uh, -huh. uh In our case, is a uh, is a two-star billet. Okay. Um, and then I, as I, I'm the chief of staff, and then subordinate to me are we have about eight other assistant chiefs of staff. For logistics and personnel and clinical right. operations and and quality and I also am in charge of uh, a number of special staff officers. Okay. Uh, we have a, a chaplain. We have a, uh, a public affairs officer. Yeah. Um, uh, we we have uh, an inspector general office that does uh, investigations and serves as our commanders. Uh, um, eyes and ears out in the organization. Um, okay. So I, I basically, yeah, yeah. Okay. go ahead, Mark. So I was, um, so, so how does, how, so do the hospitals report or, or the, the subordinate organizations report, the commanders of those organizations report to you, report to the, to the general? How does that work? So, so routinely I'm, I'm talking to those commanders on okay. a daily basis. So that's where you, you're talking about, I, you're running the organization, you're right. probably filtering the information. Right, Okay. that's correct. What's the role of the, the, the commanding general then to, as, as leader, as you said? So our, our leader, our, our general, she gives us strategic direction. Okay. Um, she gives us um, uh, our priorities. Uh -huh. um, she, she represents us to our higher headquarters and to Community, the community, and to um, our army stakeholders, um, she's involved in the up and out communication and coordination, and I am much more focused on the down and in coordination. Okay. So, what on any given day might draw your attention to a particular facility in the region? Uh, any number of things. Um, uh, we are very focused on um, delivering high-quality, patient-centered care in our in our enterprise, across our enterprise, and we're doing it every year with fewer and fewer resources. So our higher headquarters expects us to be accountable for the delivery of healthcare, and so every week we focus on um, a specific um, service line. For example, this week um, we're, we're focusing on the delivery of inpatient care and whether our staffing levels are, whether we're overstaffed in certain areas, understaffed, uh, whether we're providing um, the uh, average daily patient load that we should be doing, whether we're achieving the, the uh, patient satisfaction scores we should be uh, in each of those areas. Uh -huh. um, Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a, uh, so that's the big picture. The small picture may be, um, I, we get, receive a congressional inquiry from a member of Congress who's very concerned. They've gotten a letter or a phone call from a constituent who's concerned about a treatment of a, a soldier or a patient 
uh, in one of our facilities and we have to investigate and uh, provide a response to that constituent. Uh, and, and so it's any number of things uh, wow. like that. Yeah. So it's, From it's the, very much from the macro to the micro. Absolutely. You're, you're covering the range of, of things. That's, that's correct. Well, um, so what keeps you up at night as the chief of staff of CIRMC? What do you, what do you worry about these days in particular, anything? I, I worry about the, um, our ability to provide and, and people say world-class care, right? I, I, I worry about our ability to deliver world-class care in an environment where that is becoming increasingly critical of our effort. I see the great work Army Medicine has done over the last 13 years, incredible work, yeah. um, that the public may or may not appreciate yeah. because they've been, the public's been largely isolated, insulated, I guess is a better yeah. word, from, um, from the great care that's being delivered. And I, I worry that, uh, that our current structure um, will be degraded in some way because, because of that insulation, yeah. because our, the public doesn't, doesn't know uh, that what's going on. And I, I really don't know how to, you know, our, our, our value system, our, our, our ethic is not to be um, um, self-promoting in the Army, right? Okay. And so I think that works against us in, yeah. in many ways that, you know, and that the public doesn't understand what we've done. Um, and Congress is holding us accountable for the delivery of health care and the resources we spend. Yeah. And so uh, it's, that, that does keep me up at night, worrying about what the future will bring. Okay. You know. All right, so let's, uh, let's close on some, some thoughts about leadership and mentorship. Okay. Um, uh, uh, what kind of, of mentoring relationships are you involved with today or, or now? Or, uh, and how many of them come from kind of your position as, as chief of staff, so formal relationships? So, for example, I was waiting to, to meet with you. You were having a counseling session with one of your, your, yes. your current uh, reports. Um, but do you have, so that's kind of formal arrangements, yes. um, but uh, do you have informal mentors, men mentees, I should say, yeah. that, that, that kind of come to you for advice? Um, Over the past four, three years, I've been uh, the consultant to the Surgeon General for Healthcare Administration. So that's a formal role. Mm -hmm. And as, as in that role, I've really led the um, career development, and leader development of all healthcare administrators in, in, in the Army. Um, and, and my location here in San Antonio is pretty important and pretty integral to that because I'm located geographically on the same installation where all of our leadership training is done for our, our, our officers. So I, on a typical week, I will get mentorship requests, either an office call request, an email, a phone call from anywhere from three to 10 officers every week. Wow. And I always make a, an effort to um, set aside time. You know, when you get the email at nine o'clock in the morning, 
You may not have the time right then to talk with that officer, but you always, always set up time later in the day or later in the week to sit down with that officer and, and, uh, and, and talk with them about their career and what, what the future holds for them. And I've really taken great um, pride um, in, in doing that over the last uh, three years or so. I've been doing it all my military career, but uh -huh. this, this formal role I've been uh -huh. in has really been um, very re rewarding for me personally. Okay. I'm going to leave the Army. Right. You know, the Army will keep rolling along, right. with or without Bitterman, right? Yeah. Um, I've noticed it's still functioning without it's, Bonica. It's yeah. still functioning without <laughs> Bonica. And it'll still function without Bitterman. But you know what? The, um, the things that you do as a leader, either, either um, in a way that is, is that everyone acknowledges, or, or just the things you do that are observed by other leaders, they really um, form a, the kind of the, the, the leadership recipe that makes somebody else a good leader. Um, and so if the more time you can devote to um, more junior leaders, um, and, and developing their skill set and the way they think and act, yeah. I think it pays huge dividends for the enterprise down the road. Um, What's, so you talked a little bit about how you drew on your network. Yes. Um, especially when you uh, went into the uh, position at uh, MedCom at, uh, as the chief of staff for, for the entire medical department. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of cultivating a professional network and how is that how have you done that in your career and kind of how 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 have you how have you done that I guess I should say well you do it within the within your organization um, and within in this sense the organization I'm talking about is the United States Army not necessarily uh -huh. the the geographic location you're in uh -huh. you, you do that um, by uh, through reputation okay. you, you do that through um, word of mouth by yeah. uh, by picking up the phone and calling people, talking to people. You also do it um, between. Uh, I've done a lot of community outreach, right? Okay. And so I, you know, the vehicle I've used is my professional organization. I belong to the American College of Healthcare Executives. I'm a fellow in the college. Uh, okay. I've been a fellow for for a while. I've been in the organization for 20 years now, um, and. Like any other profession, healthcare administrators need constant leader development and progression to be effective. And so that, that's, that's what I've used as my vehicle. It doesn't matter whether it's American College of Healthcare Executives or one of the other great professional organizations we have out there. Um, you really need, as a leader, no matter how old you are or how long you've been doing this work, you need to continue to learn and get better and and foster relationships with others and help when they when someone calls asking for assistance either um, a technique um, or even actual physical resources or someone to talk to or talk to a group um, you, you do what you can at that time because it'll pay dividends down the road um, that answer your question? Yeah absolutely that's great um, so what advice would you give to someone who's thinking of making a decision to become a, a healthcare leader? 
to take on either uh, a person like yourself who, you know, a uh, young person deciding, you know, I want to get into healthcare administration, perhaps a clinician who's looking to make a transition into a leadership role from a clinical role. Um, you know, what would you what would you say to them about the 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 field, and what should they do to try to you know decide you know is this their calling and yeah. um, uh, and what should they do to try to figure that out? Um, that's a great question. I, I would tell you that first off, you need to do some self assessment on why why you want to do why you want to enter this career field. Um, it, it, it much like my decision early in my career not to be not to pursue um, uh, medical school. Uh, you need to do it for the right reasons. It, you truly are. I think the best healthcare administrators are, are really those that are cut from the the servant leader uh, model. Okay. okay. Um, you are of service to your community, whatever community you belong to. Um, and and if you can if you can do a self assessment of your motivation and your goals um, and, and realize that really the reason you're doing this is to be of service, I, I think that I think you're doing it for the right reason. Okay. Um, and if you and if it's the right reason, then it should right. make you pretty happy. Right. Yeah. And I tell young leaders this all the time: if you don't love your work, yeah. You need to find a new occupation because those who work for you know you don't love your work. Yeah, you know. So earlier in, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned your life goal. So yeah. Why don't we see? Maybe we'll close on that thought. So, what what is what is your life goal? And how uh, does that fit into what we've ta been talking about? Yeah. So, so back in '91, when I did my career map with uh -huh. David Rubenstein, uh -huh. I I my career map went out. To year thirty, okay, in military service. Okay, that's where I'm at right now. It is right. And what have I done with my career map? And what's my goal? Um, I I see myself my my role. I'd love to find a role after I leave the military, where I can continue to influence um, young developing leaders. Okay. I think that is hugely important for. Um, for the Army, um, for Army medicine, and uh, so that I think that's my life goal to continue to be of service. I I really uh, I think that's important. You know, that's a that's a very respectable life goal. Yeah. So, you did say thirty, 30 years is coming up. Yeah. Mandatory retirement. Mandatory retirement. So, any specific plans yet, or is it uh, is that still too soon to say? Um, I have, you know, we uh, we've talked about balance too, right? right. You know, um, I have one goal when I leave the army. I am, I am going to uh, ride my bicycle down the west coast of our nation, start in Vancouver, Canada, and end in Mexico. Uh, that's excellent. Take about a month to do uh -huh. that, um, and do a lot of thinking um, and reconnecting with America during that that time. And then I'll come back here uh, to San Antonio, and and I'll figure it out. I'm not being coy. I really, no. I really. A lot of people have been talking to me about, you know, hey, I've got this position, Dave. Are you interested in doing this? And and every one of them I've told, um, 
that sounds very exciting and I'll, I'll, I'll be available after the 1st of August and I'll, I'll worry about it then. Yeah. Um, I really need to, I think everybody needs to take time out in their life to figure out what's next. Yeah. And how can I make the greatest impact in the very limited time we have left here on earth, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's what I want to do. Take some time and do that. That sounds great. Thank you so much for, for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure to see you again. It's always and, great to see you, Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll see you again in about two weeks.